You don't have to be a rocket scientist to connect the dots here and see where this is going. They are going to intrude in families. It's going to get much worse. It has already started. Unless and until people put their foot down, it's going to get really, really ugly. When you first research this issue, the only things that come up are affirm your child. This is a really significant issue that your child has now fallen into. This is evil. This is absolute evil that is coming at our kids. And if our faith community is not going to stand between that evil and our children, I don't know what hope we have. There's absolutely no way that we could have gotten from 2015 to 2018 where we had transgender everywhere, okay? It took them almost 15 years to get gay marriage. Well, it took them three to five years to get this transgender stuff. When you stand by and do nothing, then you are essentially saying, I'm okay with the human carnage and the human suffering that is coming from this transgender, gender ideological agenda. This is something that is affecting families in possibly every congregation in America. The way that the devil and his forces lose this is by speaking truth. God will not hold us guiltless for our cowardice, and that's what it is. It's cowardice in the pulpit. It's cowardice in our churches. It's cowardice from Christians in government. Do what you're doing for the generations to come. Do your job. Get your tickets at dysphoriamovie.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the intersection of faith, family, and filmmaking. You're listening to Fearless with Mark and Amber, a behind-the-scenes of our filmmaking ministry, Fearless Features, where we are creating documentary films about the issues impacting our culture and society from a biblical perspective and pursuing truth above all else. I'm Amber Archer, and joining me is my husband, author, director, speaker, Mark Archer. Pumpkin Spice Latte! If you find this podcast helpful, be sure to subscribe and share the show to help us reach more people. You can learn more about us and the movies we're making by visiting fearlessfeatures.org. Yay! Here we are back Here again. Here we are back again. Back again. For another Tuesday episode. I don't think so. Uh, yes, it is, Okay, that's another exciting episode. So. I'm going to go first. The world is on fire. You can go first. Well, first of all, everybody, I'm telling you, let's just pray for Israel. Um, yeah. Um, that's been heavy on my mind, and I'm sure in a lot of our listeners' minds, mm-hmm. things that are happening. Um but the Lord keeps his promises and the Lord is in control. And the Lord is going to preserve Israel. Mm-hmm. We know that. So yeah. it doesn't change the horrificness of what's happening over there. But no. do do pray for Israel mm-hmm. and pray for our nation mm-hmm. that we will come back to him. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, and speaking of that. <sighs> so. Mm. What you got? Breitbart article. Okay. Uh, Happening this week, October 8th through the 13th, Los Angeles Unified School District plans week-long celebration of National Coming Out Day. Really? You're everyone's problem. Yeah. The Los Angeles Unified School District will be hosting a week-long celebration of National Coming Out Day in this month of October. According to City Journal, a teacher within the district shared a document uh, a document called, quote, Week of Action Toolkit Elementary 
So this is this is for the elementary schools, mm-hmm. which outlined how the LAUSD would essentially be treating the month of October as a secondary LGBTQ Pride Month. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Parents Defending Education noted the document provides elementary teachers with an identity map to use when teaching young children during this week. And this identity map map focuses on the identity of students, including their race, ethnicity, gender identity, religion, sexuality, and mental health. The purpose of the map, the identity map, is to teach students about intersectionality. Keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together, keep it together. (laughs) Teachers will have students create their own images with the identity map, and these images will be shared with the district. Okay, so I clicked on this tool tool kit. You Mm got it. I mean, you literally... If you want to see, we always say what happens in California does not stay in California. Right. And if you want to see what they are teaching elementary children. Oh, and don't forget about being an ally. Something. something you're trying to aggravate me right now. Aren't no, you? it's it's a document that you, you're going to sign a pledge to be an LGBTQ ally. You want Happy to- premise number three. <laughs> Even though I feel like I might ignite. I probably won't. (laughs) So, um, and the document also has a famous transgender person to discuss with the students each day of the week. Mm. Uh, Such famous people that will be discussing transgenderism are Elliot Page and Jazz Jennings. Do you remember Jazz? From the I Am Jazz show? Yeah, I think that we did talk about. We've talked about jazz before. We so this kid has gone. I, I like. There's a part of me that really feels sorry for this this kid. It's yeah. just been like child abuse. Yeah. Nonstop. So there there was a show on. I think it was TLC. Yeah, I think so. Called I Am Jazz, mm-hmm. and Jazz is a boy, mm-hmm. and has had all kinds of sur- surgeries now. Victimized by his own parents, young. How old was he when he transitioned? Oh, uh, maybe 10, I uh, think. Or younger. I was going to say eight. Yeah. I don't know. Very young and uh, has now had, I'm I'm actually surprised that that jazz is still even, uh, even round. I mean, yeah. the, the, the issues that this poor kid has had. On, on, I was going to say national television. I don't even know. It's TLC. Yeah. yeah it's it's national, national Worldwide, if you yeah. want to call it. Yeah. I mean, the complications from oh, the surgeries yeah. and all this, it's, it's, this is not a joke. I, I, no. We should back up too to <clears throat> remind people what some of these terms are. Intersectionality. Mm-hmm. This is, um, if you think, okay, the word intersection, right? Crisscrossing roads. Mm-hmm. When, when things cross each other and, and you have this intersection. So think of intersecting lines and each line is a different screwed up identity kind of thing right <laughs> yeah. so if you are black are you for saying example, that we're all screwed up is, well, is, that what, is that what you just said some of us are more challenged than others okay so for instance if you're black and a woman and and queer Right. Then you've got good intersectionality. According to. According to. The human rights campaign. The the right. People like that. (laughs) That's called. That's intersectionality. Now you've got three things going for you. Right. I I should have. I should have also stated that it was actually it's this is a human rights campaign 
campaign. Of course it is. Yeah. So of course it is. <laughs> so um, keep it together. 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 So that's what intersectionality is. Okay. It's as many identity issues that victimhood, as you, victimhood yeah, that you can claim right. that all come together and the more, all, all, and the more, more the, the more the merrier, the more there are, the more victimized you are and the more elevated your status should be. Right. Uh-huh. Right. So that's That's what makes you unique. Yeah. So when Duh. you hear intersectionality, just think of that. <laughs> I'm not even sure what that is. But. <laughs> okay. So anyway, so students will be invited to sign a pledge that they will you quote use kind language when talking about all teachers, staff, classmates, and their families, even if they are different from themselves. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay, that's not a bad thing. <laughs> right? But is this the only stable statement in this whole document? <laughs> Quote, be an upstander by sticking up for others, if, if safe to do so. Otherwise, they will ask a grown-up for help, says the document. Encourage and teach others to be allies. Allies. The document further linked an instructional from the Human Rights Campaign advising on proper LGBTQ language for elementary school students. Mm-hmm. Quote, when children ask questions about LGBTQ words, it is sometimes best to offer simple and direct answers, says the document. You might choose to answer a student's question with another question to figure out what they are really asking. Simple and direct answers. No, you're not. <laughs> is it about name calling a classmate's two dads or something they saw on the Internet? Listening first helps you respond. This town needs an enema. <laughs> um, I'll leave a link to it in the show notes. And in case you don't know what allies are. Oh, do <clears> tell. Ally is. We introduced some, that and show that we, heavily. We, yeah, we in talk dysphoria. about it in, in dysphoria. It's, mm-hmm. it's somebody who is not necessarily intersectional. Uh, right. You could be straight you on can, the, on the straight spectrum. S- the way for you as a straight white male, uh-huh. right? So if I wanted to get some intersectionality points. Oh, yeah. Then I would become an ally. Well, and that goes right along with um, your, what's the score? What's it? I just drew a blank. What's it called? Oh, your, uh, your DEI, or your, no, your corporate cor- equality, equality index. Yeah. Your CEI score. There it is. <laughs> and it would affect my DEI rating. Right. <laughs> and I could probably get. Some grants from the federal government. Hey, alphabet soup on a mission. Let's go. <laughs> right, so ally means that you you are a protector of and supportive of people who have lots of intersectionality. And it's it's you know, it's kind of a it's it's a it's a loser trophy, right? I mean if you're <laughs> if you're gonna be a straight white male, you're you're bra- basically at the bottom of the heap now. Uh-huh. So we do have a consolation trophy for you. You can be an ally and you can still get some. Brownie points. Some brownie points. Who knows? So that's, (laughs) that's, that's that. Okay. Now what do you have? But so it's going on this week. You know, still (laughs) through Friday, through Friday the 13th. So that's cool. Yeah. Um, Everybody knows you never go full retail. Parents warned they may soon need a license to raise their own children. Now, this wow. is this is an older article. 
We have talked about this in the past, but I wanted to revisit this. Okay. <clears throat> it's not the same one that we read a while ago. I remember talking about this. We may have, but I, I want to re-reference it and, and then okay. read some of the article that it references. So this is this article is from a couple of years ago. This is from WorldNet Daily. <clears throat> a senior contributor at The Federalist, Stella Morabito, has published a warning to parents that if leftists are not stopped in their agenda, moms and dads could soon need a license to raise their own children. Licensing of parents might still sound fringy, but it's an old social engineering dream that dies hard, and they're busily building the road to get there. Unless there is aggressive and sustained pushback, you can count on the idea invading the mainstream. So parents can't let down their guard. Uh, in her warning, <clears throat> she cited the factors that are at issue now. Number one, the racist critical race theory that teaches all whites are racist in schools. Okay. Well, and, and just think that. So this is 2021, this is 2021 when it was written. Right. And see how much has been done in the last two years yeah. to continue implementing this. Yeah. Narrative. Yeah. Number uh, two. Agenda. Number two. Check this with today's reality. Extremist sex education that includes pornography, social emotional learning to tell children how they should feel. COVID-19 masks, vaccine mandates and more. Uh, hey, go watch the mind polluters. Yeah. It'll show you all about social emotional learning. All of these directives hijack the role of parents as the emotional and moral guides of their children. Parents ought to be asking what next. Uh, if those trends are left unchecked, I think the answer could be the state of the state licensing parents. While it may sound extreme, she pointed out that quote, let's not forget that critical race theory and transgenderism were once laughed off as fringy academic notions before they burst into newsrooms, then onto classrooms and public libraries. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> this is the, what's interesting. She pointed to instructor Hugh LaFollette, who outlined. Uh, licensing parents in a 1980 article. So this is all the way back in 1980, mm -hmm. which suggested biological parents should be vetted under the same requirements as adoptive parents with psychological testing and more. Wow. Okay. Okay. 30 years later, La Follette holds the same agenda, only this time with an incremental path. He said parents should be required to take parenting classes and such. There have been efforts to undermine the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. We've seen this, of course. We've talked about Karl Marx many times, but Karl Marx, if you read the Communist Manifesto, mm -hmm. calls for the abolition of the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> and today it's school boards, of course, that want parents to sit down and shut up recording critical issues in classrooms that affect their children. Now, let me go to the original article that, that they're referencing. Okay. This is from um, The Federalist. Well, and I will say, and, and because I still actually had this saved, there was a uh, response from Answers in Genesis to these. Oh, really? Yes. And so uh, we, I'll leave a link to them. We won't read them here because we need okay. to get to Mary. But um, Okay. So, talking about this guy who first put this article or put this notion forward, at least recent, recently in 1980, um, his thesis is, this is Hugh LaFollette, his thesis is that regulation of parenting through state licensing 
would maximize parental competence and <laughs> minimize the potential for child abuse. He relies heavily on an analogy comparing the licensing of parents to state licensing required to practice medicine or law and even to drive a car. How does that make you feel? <sighs> right? In a, in a, I guess in his utopian world, it, it, it makes sense to him. But Except that we don't actually give birth to cars. <laughs> <clears throat> this is true. Um, his argument comes with a lot of baggage. His cl he claims the process could could be minimally intrusive you think and that we could trust most we could trust most bureaucrats okay not to be biased in awarding licenses oh. the same bureaucrats that are denying adoption adoptions <laughs> to christians the same bureaucrats who are allowing parents to change the gender of their children when they're born <laughs> but, i mean the main what? goes on though the main sticking point he argues is the presumption that biological parents have natural dominion over their children. He says we should reject that assumption because it treats children as property. But he doesn't deny that licensing parents would essentially treat all children as property of the state. Mm -hmm. <sighs> you know, and this is, and this is really, um, if when you study especially parental rights. Mm -hmm. And this is what the left always says is they're not your property. Right. Uh, this across the board, even the Supreme court has where's wait a minute. I have my <laughs> right here. Tradition of parental rights. Mm -hmm. How many cases are there? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 14 Supreme court cases mm -hmm. just from 1923 to 2000. <laughs> that codify mm -hmm. parental rights over your children. You have the parental right to protect your children. Right. But, you know, and it, it, we should point out too, that while we're glad that the Supreme court agrees with that, it is not in their purview. Look at how, how these are, these are natural rights. Yes. Same as the right to life. <laughs> God-given rights. Right. The right to, to self-defense. of your children. The right to free speech. These mm -hmm. are God-given rights. Mm -hmm. So whether or not the, the governing bodies agree with it or not. Because look at how they can change. Right. Um, so this guy, LaFollette, now um, in 2010, wrote his follow-up essay, Licensing Parents Revisited. He suggested we take steps uh, because... He advocated an incremental path to licensing parents because the resistance to his idea was so overwhelming. <clears throat> so we should take steps like requiring courses in parenting, giving tax breaks to parents who voluntarily get licensed. Oh my word. Right. It's like get a go get your shot and get a donut kind of thing, right? <laughs> and monitoring parents more. Uh-huh. He also noted that we should question the right to procreate, although he didn't mention what to do about pregnancy. However, and this is the kicker here, pro-licensing libertarian professor Andrew Cohen offered his take on that. Uh, quote, once pregnant, you violate no law 
until the child is born. And only then if you decide to raise it without getting a license. Right? It's not. I don't no, even no, no, know where to start with that. It's not, it's not mandatory. What on earth? But, 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 but what's sad is <clears throat> people like that, it's the same thing that we saw when, it's the same thing we saw with Alfred Kinsey, with John Money. Mm-hmm. These people get these theories and these ideas and they get funders to go spread these freak show ideas. Yeah, and can I just point out that the to... Not to go too far down a rabbit hole here, but the the uh, decoupling of the dollar back in the early 70s from the gold standard mm-hmm. has led to this seemingly unlimited, overpowering financial behemoth that the federal government just seems to have billions and billions and billions of dollars to throw at things because it's not tied to actual wealth anymore. If this was still tied to actual wealth, they wouldn't be able to do this stuff, just throwing billions of dollars at things like, you know, well, we'll give you universal basic income, but you have to get licensed to raise your kids. And Mm -hmm. then that means that you're going to raise them the way that the government tells you. And they wouldn't have the money to do this if we hadn't gone off the gold standard and are living so recklessly. Mm -hmm. You know, we have how many years has it been? Since the federal government has actually had a budget, oh, we we and we refuse to pass a balanced budget uh, amendment. They just keep passing continuing spending resolutions, and we keep raising the debt limit. Right, we just keep going further and further into debt. I don't want to go <laughs> too far down the rabbit hole on that because I think we all know what's happening here, right? They want to collapse the whole system so that they can reset everybody into digital money mm-hmm. that they can then control and then have total control over everything. Right? You have no anonymity about anything anymore. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and it's this is how it's, it's all tied together with things like the government being able to tell you whether or not you are allowed to raise your own children. And the U.S. national debt is... Uh, $33.5 trillion and ticking. Right. I mean, it. And by the time uh, you listen to this, it might have gone up a trillion. How how fast is it going? Oh, it's going pretty fast. I'll leave the clock here for you. The usdebtclock.org. Yeah. (laughs) Just go look at it. Yeah. Eh, Well, no, don't. It might depress (laughs) you. (laughs) So anyway, we got to get to Mary McAllister. Right. uh, One of two of our last um, interviews. Yes. For dysphoria. Yeah. Uh, so, all right, so let's go to break real quick. We'll come back with Mary McAllister. It's very powerful, very powerful, and, and it's well done. It uh, covers a broad range of problems that we have today in the world. I think that it's something that everybody needs to see. I was shocked by CPS being involved, and I was shocked by the secrecy uh, uh, you know, keeping the secrets from the parents of what the the children are being told and what they're being taught, and not being made aware of it, and secretly indoctrinating these kids uh, is absolutely shocking. It's absolutely horrible, and it needs to stop. I was shocked. A lot of different things are pulling together. I don't think the the expanse of how bad it is, people don't know about. All of the different elements of what's happening in the world today, somehow you pulled it 
to within two hours and 15 minutes. What stood out against uh, to me is um, I've, I've been watching uh, Klaus, the World uh, Economic Forum, uh, the Great Reset. I see that thing coming like crazy, but I didn't realize the association with dysphoria. And it's important to see that this thing has been in, inculcated into the school system and that it is now in place. It's not coming, it's in place. You think, oh, that can't be going on. And, and the more I watched it, I thought, this is exactly what's going on. Get your tickets at dysphoriamovie.com. Okay, so let's meet Mary McAllister. Now, if you've listened to this podcast for a while, you've met her before. She was a member of the cast of The Mind Polluters. Mm-hmm. And it was actually a, during her interview mm-hmm. that she mentioned a case that they were working on. In I don't think she, she actually mentioned Florida, but she just said that, that the um, child was asked which restroom or which um, cabin she wanted to sleep in during an overnight field trip. Right. So she referenced what is January Littlejohn's case. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which is a big part of the storyline of dysphoria. So it really was, so, you know, inside baseball, how do you come up with the ideas for the films? Mm-hmm. Well, we were working on dysphoria. I think Mary was the last interview we did, if I remember right. And yeah, because it was, it was going back and listening to her interview from the mind polluters that we started pulling on that thread yeah. and doing all of the research. And she was one of the last ones so that we could tie it all back up with a nice bow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so she mentioned this story in her interview. And if you watch the mind polluters, she does reference mm-hmm. what is January Littlejohn's story. And that's, that's where it started. That's where dysphoria started because mm-hmm. we went, well, what, tell us more about that. Mm-hmm. And so I think off camera, she told us more about that. Um, and it was, it was in, it was in process, in litigation or so. So she couldn't tell us a lot, Yeah. but, um, we were very interested in that and then started investigating and, that. And, then and that, that opened a whole can that of worms. led us into <laughs> dysphoria. Yeah. So Mary McAllister, <clears throat> she is sen- uh, senior litigation counsel with the child and parental rights campaign. She's a leading advocate for parental and first amendment rights and has fought tirelessly for those fundamental freedoms in all levels of federal and state courts. Mary has a wealth of experience advocating for children's rights. And she's particularly passionate about protecting children from the harms of early sexualization and exploitation. Okay, so with that intro, here is Mary McAllister. Hey, all. My name is Mary McAllister, and I'm Senior Litigation Counsel with Child and Parental Rights Campaign, which is a uh, fairly new nonprofit public interest law firm that was founded in, 19, in 2019. And we, f- we focus on parental rights uh, and protection of children, uh, in particularly uh, regarding the transgender agenda. And, uh, and bringing lawsuits, doing public policy, uh, legislation, uh, education, all, all of those things. Uh, we're based out of Atlanta. I work here in Lynchburg, Virginia. And we, um, we're bringing on another attorney from St. Louis. So we'll have an office in St. Louis uh, by November 1st. And uh, formerly, I worked for Liberty Council for 15 years, did uh, civil rights, religious liberties, uh, pro-life litigation, uh, and then I left Liberty Council to join this firm 
uh, to do this work the Lord's called me to. How fascinating. I didn't know you were part of the civil rights uh, branch of litigating. Because Can you tell us about Title IX? Yes. Just brief. Tell me about Title IX and how this affects the transgender and everything that you're seeing going on across the country. Well, Title IX, of course, is the federal anti-discrimination law for education. And it prohibits, edu- uh, pro- it prohibits discrimination in education on the basis of sex. And it was enacted by Congress to help level the playing field between women and men in education, in, in lower education and in higher education, because many opportunities that were being made available to men were not made available to women. Women couldn't, couldn't get the scholarships, the athletic scholarships. Uh, they couldn't get into some of the uh, enge- you know, engineering programs, uh, military colleges, things like that. So it, this was enacted specifically to give women uh, an equal shot with men in the education realm. And so f- since it was enacted, of course, it's said discrimination on the basis of sex. Well, for the last several years, those who advocate for the LGBTQ agenda have been attempting to expand its reach to be uh, not discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Uh, They've asked Congress several times to amend the law to say it's not only sex, but gender identity and sexual orientation. Congress has never done that. Uh, It came close with the Equality Act uh, in 20, I think that was 2021, where the House approved it, but the Senate did not. But Congress has never changed the law to mean anything but discrimination on the basis of sex. So they've been having to go at it now in different ways with Title IX. Uh, Under the Obama administration, they issued some guidance, which was of no legal effect, but it was politically, they politically pressured then school districts to say, we at the administration say sex means gender identity and sexual orientation. Therefore, if you want to keep your federal funding schools, you can't discriminate against sexual orientation and gender identity. Well, that um, was rescinded during the Trump administration and it went back to being, it always was, but it went back to it was sex is sex, not the other. And then during the Trump administration, the Department of Education enacted regulations that said that that very thing, it's sex. So now the Biden administration has come in and gender identity, particularly also sexual orientation is a particular focus for them. And so right from the beginning of his administration, he's issued executive orders saying you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. Uh, And he also, their administration also issued guidance, similar to what Obama had issued, pressuring the schools once again to say you can't discriminate on the basis of gender identity. And that this means you have to open up your bathrooms so that a boy who thinks he's a girl can use the girls, vice versa. Uh, you have to accept what they say about their name and their pronouns and make everybody comply with that and all of those things. And then meanwhile, what they also did is they also then, in June, put forth 
some draft, new draft regulations for Title IX that incorporates all of these things that they want to have Title IX stand for so that it would make it then mandatory that they would have to open up bathrooms, they'd have to have the names and the pronouns, and it's actually very, very comprehensive. It's like 700 pages worth of new regulations. It, and those have not been implemented yet. They, they put them out, because according to federal law, you have to, when you propose a new regulation, you have to publish it, you have to give the public time to comment, and then you have to review the comments. Well, they, they had it out for comment over the summer. That ended in September, and they got upwards of 300,000 comments. And so now those are being reviewed, and then they have to answer them. And then at that point, they could be implemented. Once they're implemented as regulations, then they do have the ability to enforce them. But as of now, they are not regulations. Now, what, what, of course, the schools are doing, and, and many of the school board attorneys, are acting as if those have already been enacted. And so they say, we have to, federal law requires that we use the child's preferred name and pronouns, or that we open our bathrooms up. Federal law requires it. Well, no, federal law doesn't require it yet. Uh, it's just an interpretation that the administration has put forth, and it's not even a regulation yet. So just to be clear, who at the school district agrees and moves these things forward if it's, if it's, if it's just suggested that they do these things and it's not really a regulation, it's not enacted into law or anything like that? Who at the school level are the ones responsible for adhering to What's these, these dear colleague letters? Well, the school board is ultimately responsible for enacting policies and overseeing them. The superintendent is the like administrator, sort of the CEO of the school. And he or she is responsible for implementing the policies that the school board enacts. Much like in the government, you know, you have the legislative branch, well, the school board's equivalent of the legislative branch and the superintendent's the equivalent of the executive branch. And, but obviously there's a lot of interconnection there. And so many of the, especially administrators, have been trained by many of the um, pro-LGBT groups and told that these are laws. And, and then unfortunately, many of the school board attorneys have also been trained in that and have also been made to understand that <clears throat> this, these are binding and you have to do them. And a lot of times it's just really being ultra conservative and worried about being sued or worried about losing federal funds. And so they say, don't risk your federal funds, just, just do what they say. Well, you know, that's not good law, obviously, but that's, you know, they, they say, just don't rock the boat, just do, do what the government says and, and all of this. And then, of course, parents and children are left in the dark. And so the school boards could, you know, if they had good counsel and if they 
were courageous and wanted to stand up and, and say, this is not the law. And in, you know, in our district, our policy is to, you know, to continue to recognize, you know, the two sexes and not, and, and you certainly, and one of the things, of course, that's always used is they say, uh, you know, a safe and supportive school environment. We want a safe and supportive school environment. We don't want anybody bullied. We don't want anybody discriminated. Well, of course not. Nobody does. And you do, you may have children who come in and have this idea that they are another gender. And, and of course you're compassionate to them and you don't try to harm them and you don't let the other children harass them. But, but then you also don't put all the other children aside, push them aside uh, to make sure that, that this one child basically doesn't get their feelings hurt. Uh, you know, you don't want your feelings, no one wants their feelings hurt, but the, the, the thing is, is what is the best for the entire school environment? Uh, and it's to treat, treat these children with care and compassion like you do any child, like you do a child with a physical disability or mental disability. You know, you, you treat them kindly, you give them the services they need and provide them an education, but you don't make all of the other children have to deal with what that child's dealing with. And so, but that's how they get a lot of the, uh, pol the bad policies and whatnot going is that they, you know, well, safe and supportive school environment, I think, I, I think we hear that probably 15 times in every case we have. That, you know, you call the school board's policy a safe and supportive school environment. And we can't, and these children are gonna commit suicide if we don't affirm them and, you know, just on and on with these things that nobody's gonna disagree with, but they're not really true. And so that's, that's how they sort of get everybody emotionally involved. Okay, so. Yeah, status. Lot, there's a lot there. Yeah, status of the new Title IX regulations, because yes. uh, like she was talking about, they had that period where people could submit comments. And right. we have talked extensively about Title IX. I mean, Curtis Hill has talked about mm -hmm. it. Mary McAllister has talked about it several times. Alex Newman, I believe, also mm -hmm. spoke with us about it. Um, I think maybe even January Littlejohn. I'm not sure that it made it into the interview, but we did talk about it. Title IX is really something that's very important for all of us to pay attention to when it comes up and they want to revise mm -hmm. any of, of, of what it is. And so um, like like Mary was just talking about, so I did just find um, a status of the new Title IX regulations. This is October 5th. So just a few oh, days okay. ago, uh, there was a lawyer, a compliance, a compliance law firm who helps schools. Great. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so originally the Department of Education stated that they would release both the athletics regulation and the revised sexual misconduct regulation in May of 2023. That deadline was moved to October of 2023. Today is October 5th, and it is very unlikely that we will have new regulations this month. As it stands, the Department of Education has not sent the regulations for Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs review, and no OIRA meetings with stakeholders have been held. Previously, stakeholders. Stop. Previously, <laughs> OIRA held over 100 meetings with stakeholders between November 2019 and March of 2020 before publishing the final rules in May of 2020. 
While we expect a somewhat shorter timeline now, it is likely the new rules will follow a similar path. In short, our best guess is that we will not have new regulations until spring 2024 with an implementation in fall of 2024. So this is what's interesting. Yes. Do you think that the outright, what I guess we could call the Bud Light effect mm-hmm. and the Target effect, mm-hmm. have maybe slowed this down? I, I think somewhat it has. Mm-hmm. And the over, like she said, like what Mary just said, is there was an overwhelming amount of people who actually wrote in. Mm-hmm. And, and, and by law, they have to respond. And I can tell you, I have yet to get a response. Yeah, I've made several comments. <laughs> I haven't gotten so, a response. So I know that they're not responding. <laughs> Uh, and, and so it's, it is, it is really interesting to see and be a part of watching how the law works Mm -hmm. and how the system works and being a part of the change and listeners, you too, we cannot encourage you enough to pay attention and be a part of the change. Yes. One voice matters Mm -hmm. because collectively, if we stand together you're you become an immovable force stand firm as yeah. as the word says yeah because the truth is when they have that i mean what mary say so this this was uh recorded last summer and even then you know when she was saying they had this overwhelming amount it was over three hundred thousand comments mm-hmm. you have to put that into perspective exactly in in light of this process and how many comments they usually get on things, mm-hmm. that is overwhelming. Mm-hmm. That is enormous. So whether or not it's going to make it, I, this is, I, I, the, the one thing that you can always be sure of is that evil people will continue to be evil. Mm-hmm. So we continue to fight. We know that things are going from bad to worse, but that's no reason to sit back and say, I give up. Um, that's that's not a godly position to take at all. No. So we have to continue to fight, but realizing that these people are evil and they're going to keep pushing this. So on the one hand, will it matter the enormous pushback culturally that's already happening towards this transgender agenda being shoved down everybody's throats? I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's definitely slowed things down. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you immediately saw, I remember we saw after the Bud Light thing and the Target thing, and then there was, there were, uh, news stories that were floating around about how even corporations like Starbucks were sending memos out to their stores saying, Hey, lay off the, the pride flags and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And, and. I, at least where we're at in the Midwest, they have. I, I haven't seen a lot of. I mean, even places like Tennessee and that where we would travel through, you'd see their little pride flags in the drive-through windows and and things like that. And that stuff's kind of it. Kind of all disappeared <laughs> because when it starts affecting the bottom line, it does slow things down. So you know, well, it's, and and I'm just looking. I, I was curious looking at the census and aged 18 and over Mm -hmm. in 2022, because how many do over 300,000? So I'm looking for adults. How many, how many adults are paying attention and actually writing in 
and age 18 and over from the U.S. Census in 2022 was 260,836,730 people. Mm -hmm. So it's still a fraction of the people. You know, the interesting thing, though, again, is that and and whatever. Here's the thing. I don't trust them for anything. I don't trust the federal government any further than I can throw them. <laughs> So if they admit to 300,000, how many was it really? Yeah, exactly. Because right? there were people, and I saw the screenshots of people who were going on, and it'll, it had a ticker of how many comments there were. Right. And then suddenly it dropped back down. Right. It was, it was almost reminiscent of the elections. Mm. <laughs> mm. Did I say it all out? I yep, did. Yep, yep, yep. So, yeah, I think, I think honestly it was probably in the millions. Probably. probably. Maybe, maybe even tens of millions. And they, they just... They lie about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know it's hard to believe that the government would lie about things. But. Yeah. So okay, we got more so from Mary? Next section here with, with Mary. We're going to talk about David Reimer. And so we talk about his story in Dysphoria. Mm -hmm. And I think we should, we, this will be a good introduction to him, but also John Money and Harry Benjamin. Um, and we're going to do a whole episode at some point on the Reimer twins, but this is a good introduction to their story. This is where the whole notion of nurture over nature mm -hmm. even came from. So this is the origins of the transgender movement. Here we go. John Money was one of two people who started the transgender phenomenon, so to speak. Harry Benjamin was another, but John Money was really the one who pioneered the surgeries and the treatments and whatnot. And he worked at Johns Hopkins University, and he had been studying uh, the phenomenon of intersex. You know, there's a very minute percentage of, of children who are born, and it's, it's not clear if they're male or female. They are one or the other, but physically, you know, they're, they're difficult to tell. And so he was studying that, and then, of course, he was an, uh, in... Uh, devotee of Alfred Kinsey, as was Harry Benjamin. And so just that his influence, uh, they got to feeling, and, and especially Harry Benjamin as well, uh, got to believe that this idea of sex and gender was really more of a fluid thing. It was more of a, you know, if you raise your gender roles, gender identity, if you raise a child as a, as a boy, then they'll be a boy. But if you raise them as a girl, then they would be a girl despite their bodies. And so Money um, conducted many experiments at Johns Hopkins University to try to prove his, his theory that it was basically nurture more than nature, that it wasn't, whatever you were born was not necessarily immutable, that it could, it could be changed. And, um, and then Harry Benjamin had done that beforehand, but Money was the one who really did the experiments and the hands-on there at Johns Hopkins, because Johns Hopkins is a large and well-known research facility, so he had the wherewithal to do that. And so one of the most famous experiments that he did, and it really was an experiment, was the Reimer twins. These were twin boys who were born in Canada uh, to you know low-income parents, 
uh, and they went in to have to get a circumcision for the bo both of them. Well, the one boy, it went really wrong and it damaged his genitals, so they had to be removed. And then the other, I think they decided just not to circumcise the other boy. So you had this boy who had this damage. And the parents obviously were just not knowing what to do and how are they gonna deal with this with their son and all of this. They saw Dr. Money on a television program, I think a talk show type thing, and he was talking about his work. And, and they thought, well, maybe he can help us with what we should do with our, our son. And so they called, you know, got hold of him, contacted him. And of course he was very excited because here he has twins. Okay, he can test his theory out now because he, the twin whose, whose genitals were damaged, he can make to look like a girl and tell his parents to raise him as a girl and his twin brother will be raised as a boy and then he can demonstrate his theory. So he brought the family to Johns Hopkins and they did some further surgery on the, on the one boy who was, his birth name was Bruce uh, and they renamed him Brenda. And then they told the parents, raise him as a girl. Girls clothes, you know, girls hairstyles, girls toys, etc. And the other brother as a boy. And so they did that for a while, but, but Bruce never, I mean, you know, it just never took with him. He always felt uncomfortable. He wanted to do with more what the boys were doing, etc. And so it wasn't working in, and they would go back to see Dr. Money, you know, periodically for checkups or whatnot. And he did various things um, with them to try to cement his theory and try to get them to know, okay, he's a, this one's a girl, this one's a boy. Here's what boys and girls do together. You guys try that out. Uh, and you know, you are a girl. And I think he even had a, a at the time there were transvestites come and talk talk to the, the little one about being a woman and whatever. And so anyway, it just never, it never gelled. He got, you know, more and more distressed about just emotionally. And so finally his parents told him. And so then he, you know, reverted, while well, he then started acting the, the boy that he was, uh, he took the name David um, and then went, you know, went on with his life. He did marry a, a woman and help raise her kids. Of course, he couldn't have any on his own. Uh, but both he and his brother were, were very damaged, very traumatized by what Dr. Money had done with them. And so uh, both of them ended up killing themselves within like months or weeks of each other because the, the trauma had just gotten so bad and they just could not overcome it. Now, but Dr. Money promoted the Reimer story as a success story in his writings. He wrote papers on it and say, oh yes, we've shown that if you raise a, a child of one sex or the other, then they, they will be, they will personify that sex and it, and it was a success. And so, but later, of course, when the, when the truth came out, it saw that it wasn't a success. But meanwhile, there had been, there were all these other researchers and there was Harry Benjamin's group that were all just carrying on with, with money's protocols 
uh, because he had very specific protocols of um, when you would do this, like, you know, a boy who had, had you know, smaller genitalia, you know, you would make that per boy a, a girl or that kind of thing. And so th that just sort of kept going. Uh, they did eventually shut down Money's Clinic at Johns Hopkins. Dr. Paul McHugh came in as the head of it and had was really questioning this. And so he had another uh, researcher do, a do some studies and he found out that it was not helping it at all. It was more harm than help, so they shut it down. But then what happened is Harry Benjamin had developed some of these standards as well that money was using. And so one of their colleagues started what was the Harry Benjamin Institute for Transgender Studies. And so they tried to carry on and with the with the what they called standards of care. They're really not, but that's what they called them. Well, that group became what's known today as WPATH, which is the World Professional Association for Transgender Health. It was the Harry Benjamin, and then when, after he passed and whatnot, they changed it. So that's WPATH. Well, that's an international organization, and they are regarded as the experts on these, what they call standards of care. They're really guidelines. I mean, they're not, they're not medically and scientifically really standards of care. They call them that. But they have become the source. It's like the, not to be uh, uh, irreverent to the Bible, but it's their Bible. It's their, those standards of care. That's their encyclopedia that they go to. And they are the ones that lay out about socially affirming the children and puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, surgeries, and those are what everybody relies on, is what those standards of care come up with. And so those are exactly what, what money was doing, it was exactly what Benjamin was doing, and that's just what they carry on now, and to this day, and of course, all of the major medical associations, the you know American Medical Association, American Association of Pediatricians, um, the psychology, psychiatry, all of them now pretty much follow those standards. And now, however, and, and, that, and that can be, that gives them a lot of credibility, especially in courts and whatnot, because they come in and they say, well, we have all these, you know, list, laundry list of associations, and these are the professionals, and they say these are great. Well, in reality, those associations have, have really become very political. And in reality, there's a group of maybe 10 to 12 people who write these position statements or, or who make these recommendations. And, but they act like it's approved of by the 20,000 pediatricians that are in their group. Well, no, it's approved by 10 or 12. And the others are just either go along or they don't know about it or, or whatnot. Uh, but that's then how they get the credibility to move forward, mm -hmm. and even even in the courts, they'll get um, the people to the court to go along with with their side of it that these treatments are okay, they're medically necessary, etc., based only on all of these political decisions. So fascinating, WPATH, and, mm -hmm. and I think that I even mentioned WPATH 
last week in passing, uh, kind of jokingly, because um, when we were finishing up an interview last year in October, mm-hmm. um, WPATH, the, all the trans rights activists, they included Eunuch as oh, the right. new new um, self care or, mm-hmm. or how do they how do they standards of care right to include um <laughs> castrating w, yourself the, the yeah the whole story of wpath reminds me of secus yes they have this this illusion of being official mm-hmm. but when you dig down not very far you don't have to dig very hard you find out that this is just yeah the follow the money we're straight to john money yes you find out that this is just there's nothing there it's just and it really is like she said it's not they're not representative of the whole of the medical community no they're controlled by boards of leftist radicals Mm -hmm. who have decided this is what we're going to stand for and unfortunately they control all of the um the certification and licensing yes. process, if not directly, indirectly, and they can influence that. So it's like what you're seeing now with doctors who question. Uh, even teachers. I mean. Yeah. But like what you see with doctors who question this, mm-hmm. who question the efficacy of the COVID shots, mm-hmm. and now who are questioning transgender health. Mm-hmm. Well, they they find themselves up for review. They find themselves with their licensing licenses being pulled. This is this is just how how the left works, right? It's just everywhere. Gain right? control of all of the institutions. Yeah, yeah. That we once trusted. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so that's um, that's Mary McAllister. That's Mary McAllister, and we'll talk more about the Reimer twins. Um, and you can hear more of that story if you come to see dysphoria yes because i totally forgot to mention it at the open so there is a screening set up in napanee indiana of dysphoria this is not a red carpet event this Mm -hmm. is just a regular screening it's going to be at maranatha glory it's uh 9636 west hepton road in napanee indiana the link is in is on our website it's yep it's on it's at dysphoriamovie.com is where you can get tickets it, these are ticketed events as we prepare and get ready to. Um, right. But this is the ticketed events. This is not the red carpet ticketed event. So the red carpet was a uh, was a black tie fundraiser. We did that once to kick the film off. And now these are regular screenings. So regular ticket prices for these films. It, it does cost money to, to put these on. Um, and but we will be there. Yes. For for this event, so we hope that you, if you're in anywhere in central or even northern Indiana, and if you missed the red carpet premiere, yes. this is a good chance to see it. Because right now, as missionaries, mm-hmm. um, we truly believe, and we owe it to all of our incredible supporters, to leave no stone unturned in pursuing a distribution outlet and so that is where uh we are going we're we're embarking on this new task to find the perfect distribution opportunity to maximize its reach and touch as many lives as possible so dysphoria will be playing in venues all over for a while until we can do a mass release that's right and we'll have some more to announce here as we go yes we will it is a 
it's a slow process sometimes to, to line these up, but yeah. And you now, can, Hey, and you can request to have dysphoria shown at your church or an event. Just mm-hmm. go to dysphoriamovie.com. That's right. Yep. And maybe we'll come. <laughs> and maybe we can come. Okay. That's all I got. Yep. So that's all the time we have for today, friends. Thanks so much for listening through to the end and be sure to click that subscribe button so you never miss an episode and share this with your family and friends. And until next time, march on, saints. Okay, that's the last one.